Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for attending this lecture on behalf of the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new to our events, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Our speaker this afternoon is Ethan Berger. Uh, he is a Washington-based international consultant and educator. He's an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics. His areas of interest include corporate governance, transnational crime, and Russian affairs. Mr. Berger has been a full-time faculty member at American University School of International Law and the University of Law Faculty of Law. He has also been an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University Law Center, University of Baltimore, and Washington College of Law. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. This opening, our show of hands, how many people know this photograph? Excuse me, I think your mic isn't on. Uh, I wasn't, um, I'll be just speaking without mic. I don't know how to talk very loud. Anyway, how many people know this photograph? Okay, if someone there hands up, let me tell the room what it, from the, it's from the Twilight Zone. We had an episode where uh, William Shatner is afraid to fly, and he looks out of the wind and he sees a creature destroying the world. <laughs> right, and what's interesting, this is part of popular culture in the United States. And when they remade the Twilight Zone in 1983, and the current remake, which is coming out shortly, they decided to use this. And there's a reason for it. Because when you think of it in terms of the topic we're going to discuss today, you think of Shatner, and then later John Lithgow, and then now Eric Scott. He's a cyber specialist, or he's a Russian studies person. And he sees things which the other people in the airplane do not see. And he's sort of freaking out under the circumstances. And then he's with the woman who's sitting next to him in the state. And then the question is, who does she represent in this video? Well, we'll discuss this as we go. This is sort of the roadmap for today. I'll quickly do a presentation, so the context and the scope of it. And then we'll do Russian intervention in the Brexit referendum, Russian intervention in 2016, the US presidential election. And then I'll discuss Kathleen Paul Jameson's model on the weaponization of social media for election purposes. Notice I use the word intervention, not interference. Uh, and I think the now interference doesn't go to the extent of what is taking place. Now, Russia is kind of an interesting country when you look at it from an economic standpoint. Uh, in terms of GDP, you know, it is way above a large industrial country. So you look at this and you say, well, is GDP the right measure to look at the country's ability to influence things in the world? And then you start thinking, well, many of the data doesn't actually capture what is good enough. Russia through 
moving money overseas, has set up shell companies, has purchased shares in companies overseas, you know, shoals and shams and things like that. So I argue that its economic influence sort of goes beyond its place there, but also its global reach and its willingness to be opportunistic result in them being far more important in terms of international affairs. Now, one of the things always to consider is the problem of vocabulary when discussing things like cyber operations. I mean, for example, the term war. War is a political term. It means absolutely nothing when you say cyber war. That's a, that's a headline for history. Uh, and when you think of war from a legalistic standpoint, most people look to the UN Charter. And the UN Charter, Article 2, Paragraph 4, basically prohibits the uses of war of force, except that granted by the Security Council. And also, uh, they discover, what they discuss as being uh, the use of force below a threshold of significance. And of course, Article 51 of the UN Charter grants countries the right of self-defense. But as you go through the UN Charter further down and other writings on the international law governing cyber ops, the rather severe restrictions on what a country can legitimately do. But I think generally, in terms of looking at what the Russians do, the best prison in which to look at what they've done is the international law governing espionage. Espionage, conceptually, is not unlawful under international law. It's basically treated by each country's domestic law. And that's why you have you know, the indictment against the people of GRU. You're not having a case before the ICC International Court of Criminal Activities, International Court of Justice, this type of thing. It's treated as a domestic thing. And during peacetime, you exchange spies if they're on your own territory. During wartime, you're the right to shoot them. But in terms of information warfare, you know, I'll give you a definition out there. This presentation, by the way, is online. I'm doing something which most people who give PowerPoint presentations say not to do, which is I put a lot of information on the slides. Part of it is done because I don't use my students and stuff. I tell them, don't take notes. Just listen to me, write down a note to yourself that you want possibly to ask a question about. Everything you need to know will be there. And that's sort of the way I'm treating this to you. But information warfare, it falls into the category of soft power. And the idea being power that does not cause kinetic harm, physical harm. So what does cyber espionage come out of it? Well, it will not be A, which is an attack against a computer system, which could cause physical harm, because that could fall within the category of traditional war. What you're looking at are basically internet searches you know, of other people's um, you know, IT, 
uh, stealing information, social engineering techniques, or gathering information on uh, foreign people, etc. This type of thing. And that's all legitimate under international law to try to get that information. So that leaves countries, in this case the United States and the UK, with a dilemma, which is shaping and treating cybersecurity and the cyber attacks arising from Russia, China, Iran, North Korea as something best responded to as a law enforcement measure, measure or a military action. Here, the bottom you can see the things that correspond to the things at the top. If you take a civil approach where the cyber ops are the responsibility of DOJ, MI5, MI6 in the UK, with DHS, the criminal penalties, civil sanctions. If the Department of State is taking a major role in money, the Department of State is not really acting by itself. It's either acting in conjunction with the military or in conjunction with DOJ and DHS. We're looking at the public diplomacy and this type of thing. Then if you're responding militarily, and you do the armed forces. But in each case, in the UK and the United States, and I'll be going through the facts of this stuff, we have enablers. In some cases, you have where people in the United States and the UK have commonality of interest, commonality of views with the Russians as defined. Then you have a situation where where the Russians are actively supporting people who are already doing things. It's not simply, you know, they like these people and they're sort of stealing, they're borrowing information and things like that for using on their social media. It's an idea of affirmatively supporting your enablers' actions. For example, the NRA giving money to campaigns. And we will see the same thing took place in the UK in terms of the referendum. Then you have co-opting opportunists, the idea of getting people to do things for you. And then the last thing is, is taking advantage of people who may have financial problems, who may be susceptible to blackmail, etc. This last category is the most promising, but they're also uh, the most problematic. Now we'll start with Brexit. Once again, this data is only significant in the fact that on the eve of the voting, it was statistically impossible to really have a real sense of who was going to win. Uh, if you look at, for example, uh, undecided votes, you have a huge number, you know, 6 to 10% were undecided on the verge of the vote. And then if you look at the leads, the greatest lead in any single poll was 4%. But if you were a betting person and you went to lab works, or one of the many places you can place a bet, Remain gave you 10 cents, 10 pence of a pound. So people thought that Remain was a done deal. And you would make six to one if you had bet on the lead. And this is like just before the vote. So that the perception of UK citizens was that irrespective of what the polls were saying, they just thought this could not happen. 
with a special law setting. But something important to think about, sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, and I'll just say that. The lead vote ultimately was 51.9%, remaining 48.11%. And the voting turnout overall in the UK was 72.21%, which meant that 27.79% of people with the right to vote did not cast the vote. The two biggest categories of people are this who are living overseas, principally in the EU, and university students who didn't go home to vote. There were no absentee ballots set up. There were no arrangements set up in embassies overseas. So you think logically, a large share of those people would have voted for me. But they had complacency. It really didn't seem like it was going to matter. David Cameron had set this up in order to get the whole issue behind the UK. So, if you look at the numbers and you lump together the not voting people into the, the main people, you have 62.55% of the people who favor the main. And the question is, well, why was Remain so overconfident? The first thing is that most people would favor the status quo. EU membership was something that people had dealt with for a long time, and that withdrawal represented a major change. The UK establishment favored the remain for the most part. Uh, a lead campaign did not have the resources of Labour Party or the Conservative Party behind it. It did have UK, UKIP, but it really didn't have the principal politicians behind them. But one thing that Lee did have are arguments that press the hot button of many people in the UK, sort of pressuring <coughs> them to vote. And it's, and you know, you'll see the arguments that they were making that he threatened British sovereignty, it was leaving Britain with a lot of regulations that would be ruled by, by Brussels, that Eve favored big corporate interests, and that you know, we had currency problems, but also the EU represented a vehicle that led to many, many immigrants coming into the UK. What's also very interesting in terms of looking at the polls, a lot of the projections were off because people, say, who were originally from in the subcontinent in Asia, the people thought that maybe they would vote Remain. They actually favored Brexit because they didn't want more people coming into the country to compete with them. It's sort of like there were enough Polish plumbers already, we don't need more of them. It's not so dissimilar to the situation where people speak in generalities about Latino vote in the United States, the idea of thinking that all Latinos would want to be liberal on immigration. That's not necessarily the case. And the thing about generalizations, generalizations are generally true, except when they're not. Uh, but in terms of how the vote broke out, Brexit carried most of England and Wales, but not part of the city or part of the city in Wales. And the remaining got London, 
principal other big cities, Liverpool, Manchester, carried Northern Ireland and stopped. The voting situation was really kind of interesting. As the younger people were, the more likely they voted to remain. But once again, there's a little problem, which is the younger people tended not to vote, and the system was set up so that younger people would have a harder time voting. Because the first time that they could register was when they were living at home. So that if they're being or they moved some other place for jobs or something were traveling or something, they weren't being included. The older you are, the more likely you are to vote in favor of Brexit. In both cases, Remain and Brexit took advantage of digital advertising and very similar type of things that we know took place in the United States. But what was interesting is that when it was being monitored, UKIP, which is the Independence Party, Nigel Farage is like the head of it, was head of it, and then Leave EU, which was an independent pro-Brexit group, was sort of beneath the radar screen. They were not part of the official campaigns you know, on, for Brexit. And so when people were studying this, studying the ads and things like that, they weren't picked up in the same type of way, sort of like independent spending in presidential elections in the United States. If you were just looking at the presidential campaigns and their ads, totally ignoring the issue of spending on things. Uh, just to give you a sense of what the ads were like, you know, certainly uh, pro-Brexit people had better ads. You know, they, one ad, you know, which a lot of people commented on the top left. You see uh, a Muslim woman walking past someone who was hurt on a bridge, and you know, uh, stabbing, and person like a heart attack or something like that. But she's basically indifferent to someone who's having a hard time. Uh, on the upper right hand, you see a bus, and these are all over the place. It says that you can every week gives the EU 350 million pounds. So basically, financially, it was like EU is financially not good for the UK. Now, these numbers were contested just after the election, of course. Jordan admitted that the numbers they were throwing around were not valid, but after the election, it didn't matter. Uh, and then you get the little thing at the bottom this is Eve Killers and Rapists that failed to court. Sound familiar? Uh, whereas, in contrast, the remaining ads, and you find it's a sampling, tended to be common in general. And you know, try to say, look, the way it is right now is better. It's better to stay in the EU. And the idea of leaving is just reckless. It's just not compelling argument. This is really interesting. Uh, not worth looking at the numbers too carefully, but <coughs> how low the money levels were that were spent on Brexit. I mean, this is a really critical vote. And, and you see, Bottom is like 19 million pounds versus 13 million pounds. 
think the results indicate otherwise. Um, in terms of media campaigns, while there's an entity over at Oxford who sort of discounted the idea that uh, social media played a big role, particularly that from the IRA, um, the amount of information shared on social media the last several days was one-third. It's basically a third came out of Russia the last couple of days social media that's being shared. Um, and of course you have in the UK, Russia Today and Sputnik are viewed as legitimate media, not as you know, state media. Top tweets are all sort of anti-Islamic type things. Why does this matter? Well, Britain is a strong supporter of the United States. Countries you know, in terms of you know, sanctions against Russia with respect to Korea and Ukraine. Um, Britain is not friendly to sort of pro Kremlin parties on the continent. Uh, Britain votes with the United States and the US. So the worse it is for, for the United States, which is for, for Britain in terms of being part of Brexit, the worse. EU is solid, the harder it is for the United States to achieve its foreign policy objectives. Um, <coughs> the other slides is dealt with voting in terms of Theresa May and things like that. It changes every day. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that all of this could have been avoided had David Cameron not <coughs> been so arrogant. I mean, he thought that he could put the whole EU issue was the past. But he could have very easily said, okay, it has to be two-thirds plus one vote in order for Brexit to pass. I mean, constitutional changes, mind you, Britain does not have a constitution, but most countries have supermajority requirements to amend your constitution. Why did David Cameron didn't think of doing that? It's hard to explain. But the question is, what happens if the United Kingdom splits up? Well, Northern Ireland will probably not want to stay connected to England. Certainly, Scotland will reconsider um, the independence issue. And that's, and that will switch the United States. Uh, you guys know this better than anyone. I'm used to giving this presentation to non-US citizens, but basically, if Hillary Clinton had basically done what Obama had done, and lost one or two states, she would elect the president. Uh, what's interesting is the Russians here were not doing a pure social media campaign. They were changing the facts on the ground, combining it with social media. So it's a little bit different than what was taking place in the UK. You know, it's, you remember the guy with the sign outside the White House, uh, Rallies which are being organized. You have the storage documents that connect the communication between people who are connected to the Trump campaign, who preserve 2.0, et cetera, all these types of things. Uh, these, 
things probably well, you know, influence, of course, uh, Booker. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, let's skip that. Oh, the other thing which is interesting is the targeting requirements of internet research against an agency had to be more specific than for Brexit. For Brexit, you know, simply because it was a simple majority, they could target the entire country in the same way. Whereas IRA and the Trump campaign had to target, you know, basically you know, competitive states, battleground states, in order to flip the election. Uh, it would have been different if the United States had a system where the candidate who got the most amount of votes was elected. With Brexit, that was essentially the situation so that they could go after the entire country and they didn't have to target different cities, different small towns, things like that. But what's also interesting is the typical Brexit voter is considered to be sort of a disillusioned white male who feels that technology is passing by, that looks to his future and is scared, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds different. Uh, groups that were micro targeted by the Trump campaign and by IRA, IRA key ones African Americans and Jill Stein. Getting them to stay home obviously changed the outcomes in the three battleground states. Uh, the 2016, once again, this is something you know better than me, probably. Uh, some of the key factors that made U.S. voters particularly susceptible to the trolling campaigns. One, the lack of faith in traditional media, the increased use of social media, the lack the less connected to the established parties. And what's also interesting is the percentage of voters who made the decisions very last minute. And those numbers I throw out, you know, Wisconsin is 14%, Pennsylvania 17, Michigan 11. I don't know if last minute is, but anyway. I think it was the last minute. Another thing which is very interesting is the role of Facebook. Uh, Facebook didn't have a manual. And Brad Porcino, who was the digital manager the Trump campaign basically got the Facebook people to go to his headquarters in Austin to show them how to do the targeting that he wanted to do. Which I think These are other things. You should also keep in mind that Cambridge Analytica has ties to the Trump campaign. Uh, Robert Mercer, who funded, is a partial owner of Cambridge Analytica. Steve Bannon is a partial owner of Cambridge Analytica, and they have you know, ties to various Trump people. Those are the two indictments. You know, the first one being the one being the GRU one. Use a slide for one teach. The slide, sorry, the, what's interesting is the types of ads that IRA was going to do were not as explosive as a 
expensive is the Trump campaign. Trump campaign would not run ads like this, would backfire with that. But I were able to do this, and other social media that could not be tied to Trump campaign might experiment with things like this. The IRA ads, with respect to Trump, the goal was to make him look as presidential as possible. Now I'm just, how are we doing on time? Dean, how are we doing on time? It's 10 to 1. 10 to 1? It's like, I don't know. I'll do about five minutes and then we'll do Q&A. Christopher Jameson is at U of P, and she did studies of various uh, elections, mostly you know, Obama's two victories. And people started calling her up and saying, you know, this is very strange. You know, there are always people making claims about the impact of social media on the outcome. But no one's really studying it. Should we believe this? You know, People in the media make these generalizations, and we don't believe really that. So what she did was she decided to develop a model to see the extent to which voters were influenced by social media. And basically, that's been various steps. The first one being when you are trying to get voters to be aware of the fact that there's going to be an election, there's certain issues that should be on the radar. Then the second step is what's called agenda setting, which is what we think about this issue. Then it becomes like framing, which is really opinion foundation. What you should think about this issue, as opposed to the general thing. Not like how it's going to affect the country, it's going to how it's going to affect you. And then comes contagion and interpersonal networks. The idea of being sharing with your friends, you know, this type of thing. And then the last one on this list here is factors blunting and bolstering this type of communication. One is that most people have relatively short attention spans. And most people are impervious to general campaign ads and things like that. But the impact of people that you know is greater. Your friends, your real friends, not your fake, you know, Facebook friends. But if your real friends feel the same way about certain things, they might think about it. You know, and they might correspond independently <coughs> of the social media. I mean, people will probably, those who are looking at like, Democrat primary candidates, who are asking them, what do you think about this person, that person, that person? But also, negative messages have more impact than positive messages. You know, you can't get rid of a neg negative very easily. This is just something else to read on your own time if you want to. These slides are going to be on the IWP website. Uh, the two poli-sci guys up at MIT who are trying to get money to do the same thing as Professor Jameson, looking at statistical ways of looking on outcomes and things like that. Nate Silver and Britton Nygan yeah, start, started off saying, oh, this is all nonsense in terms of social media. There's no real way to prove this. And there are people who think that there is no way to 
prove it. Obviously, you can't, cannot prove it absolutely. You can't run the whole election over again. But anyway. Uh, just things just comparing you know, the UK situation with the United States situation. Um, sort of covered most of these things already. Um, Professor Jameson makes you know, various suggestions in terms of what should be done to uh, eliminate this problem. Uh, and if you go through what she suggests, you probably think, well, each of them will not accomplish what she really wants to do. That once you end up writing down any rules, you'll figure out some way to get around them. I think the same thing, sort of the case, you know, you know there's a Senate bill produced by Senator Charter, this was McCain originally, I don't know, whose name is on it, or try to have increased disclosure and things like that. But if you want to get around the rules, you will be able to do it. If you have money, you do it. It's too much at stake. Uh, this is findings of the Internet Oxford Institute, they found some things in the United States which were consistent with uh, other people's studies, and unlike with respect to the UK, they felt it was decisive in terms of influencing the US election, particularly with encouraging right-wing voters to be aggressive towards other people, and actually now they're looking at post 2016 things because what the IRA was doing before the election, they continued to do um, through the last congressional election and same for the next presidential election. Rand Corporation also looked at this, but it's not what they're getting into, uh, and that's their model. 